Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Jim Pizer joins me to discuss the education reform movement's tendency to overpromise in the past and how we can avoid doing so as we address learning loss and beyond in the future. Then, on the Research Minute, Adam discusses a study that investigates the degree of unfinished learning of students at the top and bottom of the achievement distributions. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. The problem of hiring a bunch of contrarians is that when it's time to do the team building, everybody has a strong opinion. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Jim Pizer. Jim, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah. For those that don't know Jim, uh, Jim is the former Massachusetts Secretary of Education. He was in that role from 2015 until early 2023. Jim has been doing education reform for 30 years, much of it in Massachusetts, but also in some national platforms as well. Uh, And we're excited to have him here to Education Next article that he's got about the history and future of the education reform movement. So let's do that in Ed Reform Update. All right, Jim. Well, hey, it is, uh, as we're recording this, we are on the cusp of a holiday weekend. So we are going to be get right to it. We're going to not mess around. Uh, th- this was a great article, I thought. And a lot of people have been writing about the death of education reforms, you know, declaring uh, that it's over, writing obituaries. You didn't exactly do that here, but uh, but you're weighing in on the state of ed reform. One of your main arguments is about whether the reform movement overpromised and underdelivered. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, well, again, thanks for thanks for having me. I, I want to assure your listeners I got my bags packed. I'm ready to hit the road. So I'm looking forward to a long weekend. You know, the basic architecture of ed reform, you know, I think has actually worked um, and importantly is still supported by a large majority of Americans, although that support is becoming, I think, more uneven and more divided along partisan lines, which is to say that I think the pragmatic center is still holding, but it's fragile. And it's being drowned out, of course, by the culture war controversies that are consuming all the political and the media airtime, as well as a lot of school board meeting time. But as much as ed reform has been a success story, the amount of progress we've achieved is much less than ed reformers, including myself, would have expected or probably promised 20 to 30 years ago when all this got started. Uh, And this mismatch between what was talked about, like leaving no child left behind or eliminating achievement gaps or achieving 100, 100% proficiency rates, uh, I think it's helped enable a false narrative of failure. Uh, I, I should say here that, you know, I don't think this is solely a, a matter of overpromising. Uh, there's clearly been an ongoing campaign of resistance to ed reform and many of its components. So it's not just the shortcomings of the policy alone, although any ambitious policy, you know, inevitably is going to meet up with opposition, not just in the beginning, but over time. So we shouldn't have been surprised. And, you know, I think the other thing that's that's going on is there's also this growing drumbeat from the left and the right that schools in general, and not just ed reform, uh, are part of the problem, not part of the solution. And, you know, that goes from the sort of charges about school to prison pipelines and indoctrinating students to become social justice warriors. All of this is sort of crowding out what I think is, you know, again, the 
the reality, which is that actually we're seeing good results. They're just not as good as perhaps we have promised and hoped for. Or at least we were seeing good results, right? I mean, here we are, right, after just seeing yet another report from NAEP showing just devastating test scores. This one, 13-year-olds in math, literally wiping out, I think in this case, three decades of progress, right? And but but you're right, Jim, that that the progress in many cases went unremarked. I mean, we, you know, I don't remember a time back in, I don't know, 2010 when we all sat around and said, wow, it is amazing how much progress we've made. But we had, you know, I, I remember looking at these numbers. I think uh, off the top of my head, you know, if you look from 1990 to 2010, you know, uh, on NAEP, say the percentage of kids below basic, if you look at African-American kids, it went from something like two thirds of black kids below basic, which is horrendous, right? Too much less than half, you know, and for Hispanic kids, same thing, uh, you know, from like 60% to 40% enormous changes in a relatively short amount of time. Now, the problem is that still left a whole lot of Black and Hispanic kids and low-income kids at very low achievement levels, right? Plenty of mediocrity, you know, in, in the middle and not as much progress at the top as we'd like. But, oh my gosh, to have that kind of progress back now, where we're looking at, again, going backwards two decades because of the pandemic, although, and something else, we're not quite sure, something happening in the 2010s, uh, where the achievement stalled out and even started to climb in some results. So, I mean, here we are, and some of us want to create a sense of urgency again and, and you know, turn our anger and frustration at what we've done to this generation of kids into action. You know, so we want to see movement. I mean, but what? We're, we're supposed to not overpromise what reforms could do at this moment to help, you know, get back to where we were before the pandemic to help us through that. Yeah. So I think uh, and I think you're right to highlight the fact that even though obviously we've seen a huge backsliding as a result of COVID or in the last few years, um, we were seeing, you know, kind of a plateauing of improvement in a lot of places, not every place, but in a lot of places really over the previous 10 years um, that I think in a large uh, in large measure, this is a function of the inherent limitation of policy to affect real change in the classroom which is where learning actually happens. So, you know, and I don't want to sort of over um, uh, interpret the data or, you know, apply some uh, pseudoscience to, to this analysis. But uh, my hypothesis is that a lot of the gains we saw in the first 10, 15 years of ed reform were the result of those policy shifts that had been made, which changed a lot of the basic sort of uh, environmental factors in which schools operate. And there's there's good evidence for that, for sure, that some of I mean, not all the gains, maybe, but a big chunk of the gains, you can tie them to the accountability reform. No doubt. No doubt. But once you have those in place, it's not clear that those are drivers of continuous improvement in the absence of a real focus around, uh, you know, program and practice in schools and in the classroom. Um, and that's where I think the sort of shift needs to happen. On the one hand, I think we need to sort of rebuild or revive the understanding or the belief that the basic architecture of education reform is working, has worked, and is doing its job, but recenter our attention and resources around programs and practices that are actually working and working at scale. And so, you know, things like the science of reading, uh, early college, early career pathways and vocational technical education, high dosage tutoring, especially that's embedded in the school day, uh, out of school time learning opportunities through vacation academies or acceleration academies, as we call them here in Massachusetts, summer experiences that are combining learning with enrichment and fun, 
you know, other things uh, like a more diverse pipeline of well-qualified educators. I mean, I think if we start, we meaning sort of in, for lack of a better word, in the reform community, um, start paying more attention to what's going on in schools, not to dictate what, what happens, but to sort of raise up those things that are working to provide incentives to, you know, frankly, institutionalize a more rigorous use of student learning data and research to identify and validate and incentivize effective curriculum, programs, practices, all those things, as well, by the way, is to help name those things that aren't working that we should stop doing. I think that is the way forward in terms of building on our success to get to the next level, as opposed to, you know, continuing to refight the sort of policy wars of the 1990s and 2000s. Right. No. And, and look, all of that makes sense. And I have to say, if, if it were February 2020, I mean, I was right there with you. Right. I mean, I really did think that, OK, I was hopeful that we were finally getting to things like high quality instructional materials aligned to high standards uh, at some scale. You know, we were seeing some market share for uh, curricula like Eureka Math and Wit and Wisdom and for Knowledge Language Arts. And I was hopeful that that was going to lead to some uh, increased achievement again. But now we've got the pandemic, right? Now we've lost two or three decades of progress. And I wonder if we have to combine everything you just said, right, which is much more focus on local practice, implementation, all of that. Yes. But do we also need to recommit ourselves to some kind of, dare I say, NCLB style accountability again, right? I mean, we gave up on that uh, 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, it's been a long time since any school actually had to worry about some official coming in and closing them down for low performance. Uh, I don't know. Here we are. Kids aren't showing up to school. Teachers aren't showing up to school. There's a lot of excuses. There's, you know, um, you know, they're not doing summer school. They're not getting kids, you know, where they need to be. I mean, the wheels have fallen off the bus here a little bit. And I just wonder if we need to, to redouble our accountability efforts as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure redouble is necessarily the word I would choose uh, as much as defend and maintain what we have. And I will I would agree with you that uh, we've lost a lot of energy in this regard over the course of the last you know five to 10 years, if not more. Um, and part of that has been because the um, the efficacy of those uh, interventions, you know, sometimes all the way to receivership have been, uh, you know, I think underwhelming or put it differently, um, had been, again, using the sort of theme of my article, I guess, a, a somewhat oversold, meaning that when the state intervenes in a low performing district, um, and, and, and typically these are the lowest performing districts where there is sort of clear evidence of dysfunction, not just failure in terms of student outcomes, that their first priority and in some ways their best uh, and most direct impact is establishing uh, some stability and normalcy to the district itself so that there can be a refocus around teaching and learning uh, and around uh, sort of standard operating procedure, if you will, then uh, in some ways the chaos of what they may have been replacing. It does also allow more uh, focus around uh, doing things that make sense, uh, doing things for which there's a real evidence base, sort of getting back to evidence-based instruction um, and and curriculum in a way that is often difficult or just doesn't happen in these in these districts where there's so many other things that are getting in the way of um, effective practice. But all of that being said, 
you know, as much as I'd like to point to some of the success stories here in Massachusetts and Lawrence, for example, in particular, um, they haven't been home runs. Uh, they've been, you know, like solid doubles. And then uh, sustaining that improvement uh, and in, in particular sustaining a path of continuous improvement has proven to be very difficult. So we need to make sure that as much as we're recommitting ourselves to accountability, in particular, uh, ensuring that there is some kind of state level intervention in the lowest performing schools, we got to make sure we're not just saying, well, you know, the, the folks in uh, in the state capital or wherever the Department of Education happens to be located know what's best. So let's just turn it over to them and they'll solve everything. We haven't unfortunately been able to do that ourselves. So it, it's all of which is to say, this is really hard work. It needs to happen sort of, and, and this is sort of part of what I was trying to get at in, in, my, uh, in my article is that, you know, we've adopted sort of the language or back in the day adopted the language of system transformation and changing the world when we ought to be focused more on, you know, sort of the, a Bill Belichick mantra of just do your job. Because after all, it's the job of educators and policymakers to improve student outcomes and close achievement gaps on a day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year basis. It's not extra work. It is the work. Well, I, I like that. And, uh, and I, yes, I will let you get by with the Bill Belichick. Even here in New England, his, his reputation has taken a little bit of a hit since, uh, since Tom Brady left. So I probably shouldn't oversell that. All right, Jim. Well, Jim Pizer, the, the Tom Brady of education reform, <laughs> uh, at least in Massachusetts. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope you'll come back sometime soon. My pleasure, Mike. Anytime. Happy 4th. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Adam, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Adam Tyner filling in for Amber Northern here on our holiday weekend that we are about to have as we tape this. Uh, But, you know, what was very exciting this past week is that we had a D.C. staff retreat for the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. So I got to see Adam in person instead of just talk to him by Zoom in Mexico City. Yeah, that was great. We got to uh, share some beer tips and and hit the bar on someone else's dime. It was good. Yeah, there you go. And uh, I, I did not make people do trust falls, though I am always threatening that to be the case at one of these retreats. We did learn about our workplace appreciation languages, which, uh, as you pointed out, may not have the strongest research behind them, but was still, I thought, interesting, you know? Yeah, we could do a research minute on that if you want sometime. <laughs> uh, this is a problem of hiring a bunch of contrarians, is that uh, when it's time to do the team building, everybody has a strong opinion. So I think I'd rather have a ropes course than have to, like, share my feelings with the team again. But Yeah, that sounds about right. All right. Well, hey, uh, what do you have for us on the research front today? For today's study, we've got a new working paper from researchers at NWEA, the makers of the well-known Measures of Academic Progress, or MAP, test, about the heterogeneous effects of COVID-era learning loss. What I mean by heterogeneous effects is that These school shutdowns and other disruptions didn't affect all students equally. The effects were different for different groups. They were heterogeneous. So, you know, we've had lots of reporting that and we had a good paper last year from Dan Goldhaber showing that low income students, black students and Hispanic students all suffered more than other students when it came to COVID era learning loss. So we already know that there was a lot of learning loss and that affected some groups worse than others. This new paper uses data from the MAP assessment, which covers both reading and math, to examine 
these differences in learning loss, separating students by their prior achievement and focusing on the highest performing students and on the very lowest performing students. So let's get into it. The study uses data from about 5 million students in grades three through eight who took the MAP assessment from the fall of 2016, including three years back in the before times to the spring of 2022. That enables the researchers to compare trends in learning pre-COVID with how much students learned during the pandemic. And the researchers make that comparison separately for the highest and the lowest performers. The focus is on the top and bottom deciles of prior performance. That's the top 10% and the bottom 10% of students according to their prior performance. What they find is mostly pretty troubling, although perhaps not super surprising. For the worst performing students in reading, those students made even less progress during the pandemic than their counterparts had before the pandemic. That's learning loss. And it was substantial. But for math, it looked even worse. The students in the bottom 10% of prior performance made much less progress during the pandemic than their counterparts in earlier years. So far, not a ton of news there. But on the other hand, the highest performing students learned just about as much as they would have otherwise over the three-year COVID period. For reading, the top performing students made just as much progress during the pandemic years as the top performers made in the years prior to the pandemic, even in the year of widespread distance learning. There was basically no learning loss at all in reading for those students. In math, the highest performers lost some ground during the 2021 year, the year where we had a lot of remote learning and all of that. But they actually bounced back a little bit in the following year, making up for almost all of the learning loss in the previous you know, year and a half or so. Of course, that all means that the achievement gaps between those groups, the highest and lowest performers, grew measurably during the pandemic, although that's not really the focus of the study. It is an important implication. And it also means, and I'll wrap with this, that drops in performance among the students who were already the lowest performing could cause more students to be labeled as having a disability or flagged for at risk for having a disability, since very low performance on these assessments is often used as an indicator for disability status. So that's something they point out uh, is something that we should be on the lookout for. Whew, more bad news. Now, Adam, let me dig in a little bit about the high achievers, because when we looked at the long-term NAEP study that just came out for 13-year-olds, uh, we found, and, and our colleague Brandon wrote this up uh, for the Gadfly, that there was a significant drop-off in achievement at that high level. And we've seen that on some of the other NAEP assessments as well. So, you know, is it just that they maybe haven't yet detected this bounce back? What, what do you think? Or it's just a matter of, you know, different tests, different measures, different cutoffs? Well, I wish I could say that I, I can compare those two studies. I can just say that in this one, we do have, you know, the one year, we don't have the last year that just, you know, that just ended, but we have the year before that. And there is some bounce back there in math, but it, interestingly- For the high achievers. For the highest achievers. Exactly. I mean, it's actually, uh, there's really not much bounce back for the lowest achievers. Those lines look pretty parallel in the last year of the data that they analyzed. But I mean, it was kind of crazy to see in reading that there's just like no drop off anywhere, really. I mean, it's just the lines when they compare how the highest performers did in the pre-pandemic times to how they did during the pandemic. They just look the same. They're just two overlapping lines. And so I'm not sure what the NAEP said on that, but that's what they found with the map data. 
you know, it is so interesting on reading. I mean, I, I'm not surprised at all uh, that for the higher achieving kids, especially that you're not seeing an impact. And it's it's because, look, you know, if we're talking about, you know, the third and up, third grade and up, I mean, a lot of these kids, all of the high achievers have already, you know, way, way mastered phonics and all of that. You know, they're decoding long ago. They're probably on to reading Harry Potter and above by third grade. And so, you know, I'm not convinced that anything the schools are doing to, quote, teach reading to those kids is doing much good, right? I mean, we have reason to believe that the endless uh, exercises around reading comprehension uh, probably doesn't make much difference. I would think maybe making them write would make a difference. But did the schools do that? Well, I don't know. That's that's the question, right? I mean, more than anything, I think they keep getting their reading scores go up as they get older and as they read. And, you know, the high achieving kids, probably they were at least the most likely kids to crack open a book while they were at home during the pandemic and have parents who have lots of books and other things in the in the home and made them made them do that. I, I remember this image of Leandro early in the pandemic on Zoom school sitting next to me and bored to death in some lesson that I agreed looked very boring. I don't even know what it was about. So he was had a book on his lap. It might have been Harry Potter. And he was surreptitiously reading the book. And I thought to myself, okay, should I allow this or not? And I thought, yeah, actually, <laughs> this is probably fine. This is probably a better use of his time than, you know, paying attention to some dumb Zoom lesson. Anyway. I totally buy that. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the challenge, right? It's the Matthews effect. It's the, the rich get richer, or at least the the higher achieving kids continue to thrive when they've already got a strong foundation under them. Do you think it has any effect for the way that we think about all of the money and all of the efforts to combat learning loss? I and mean, we've been f- so focused on learning loss because it is a big problem and it's a problem for the average student and it's clearly a problem for the lower performing students. But and when we think about that, we need to make sure that we're not forgetting that there are some students that may not be dealing with this so much and we may need to stay the course or or tailor programs for them as well, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And look, as I was just talking about with, with Jim Pizer about the state of education reform, you know, do we need uh, some, do some ass kicking again, uh, you know, as in go back to some of the accountability reforms that we gave up on, no child up behind kinds of things, you know, tough love, you know, there's an argument that those should be focused as they were way back then on getting kids up to basic standards on the low achieving kids. That's where the big problem is. Of course, I got really mixed feelings, as you say. You know, we don't want to go back to ignoring the kids in the middle or at the top. And yet the crisis is definitely, you know, most acute when it comes to those lowest achieving kids. So, you know, it, this is this is hard. It's, you know, I, I want to say let's walk and chew gum at the same time. And of course we can. Uh, but, you know, when you're setting priorities, and especially if you're talking about something like tutoring, there's an argument that the kids who need it the most are those low achieving kids. And in math, you can you can see how extra time, one-on-one tutoring, high dosage tutoring could make a big difference. In reading, it's going to take something much bigger. It's going to take, you know, high quality curriculum, kind of things that you see in core knowledge or wit and wisdom or EL education, content rich, year over year, building that content base and the vocabulary. That's not a quick fix. Uh, that's, uh, but Again, it's doable if we commit ourselves to it. That's my take anyway. I buy it. Adam is is (laughs) nodding his head. All right, fair enough. Hey, Adam, thank you so much. That uh, that is sobering, but we need all the information we can get. And uh, and the the map data uh, definitely give us a picture that we can't get anywhere else. 
All right. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm Adam Tyner. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.